Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. It's the most wonderful time of the year because it's a time that you can spread all of that holiday cheer. Whether you celebrate or not, it's still a good time to buy people gifts. And even if you don't want to buy anybody else something, it's an excuse to buy for yourself. Make sure that you check out the SFB Bookstore. That is Smart, Funny, and Black's bookstore for all of your favorite Smart, Funny, and Black and Small Doses items. You can also purchase Small Doses, the book, in stores now. And all of my people in the Bay, Smart, Funny, and Black will be headed your way. Yes, NorCal, we are coming to you first for 2020. So make sure to get your tickets at SmartFunnyAndBlack.com to Smart, Funny, and Black at the Fox Theater in Oakland on February 22nd. And before that, you can catch me, New York City. That's right. I'm coming home. January 30th, 31st, and February 1st, I will be headlining at Caroline's Comedy Club in Times Square. You can also get your tickets at smartfunnyandblack.com. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is go to smartfunnyandblack.com. You can get tickets to stand-up, tickets to Smart Funny and Black, the show, and you can get your goods in terms of merch for Smart Funny Black, Small Doses, and any other witty shit I be saying. Now let's get into this show. It's so funky. <laughs> well, folks, it's the end of an era. L- literally, it's the end of an era. It's the end of a decade. I mean, the the teens are done. We're going on to the real world, baby. baby. We are of age. Okay, it's time to step into the roaring 20s again. It's a very uh, important turn of the earth and of society, etc. I feel like I don't remember it being this big a deal when it went from 2009 to 2010, but people are definitely feeling it heavy this go-round. They're feeling it this heavy this go-round, and it makes you reflect. It's always great to look back and assess, you know, your wins, your losses, your joyful moments, your low points, um, and just to take stock, right? Ultimately, for the purpose of growth, but really for the purpose of if, if there were any jokes you missed out on. You know, I'm very big on that. Like, oh, shit, we didn't laugh about that. Because, you know, you always, you know, it's happening. You're like, I can't wait till I can look back and laugh. So, for instance, like, when it was happening and I was, like, breaking up with my boyfriend who lived with me, it was like, oh, this is trash. I can't wait till I can look back and laugh. And now I can look back and laugh about 2013 when this motherfucker uh, said he wanted to spend his birthday at his homeboy's house. And then... The next day, I found out that he actually said he was going to Philadelphia and he was actually like with his boys. And then when I was like, you know what, this is done, he said, so we're not going to go play laser tag? <laughs> not at the time. That was preposterous. At the time, it was wildly offensive that he would think that I would go play laser tag after he had played me out for the past two days and celebrating his birthday. But now, here as we are going into 2020 and I look back, oh, it's hilarious. So I want you all to be able to do that. I want you to be able to take some time to look back 
and laugh at the stuff that at one point in time was breaking you the fuck down. Shit, low-key, I feel like we should do side effects of that. And I look back and 10 times that I was low that I can now laugh at. Ha, 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 ha. Let's so not be, fun. it's almost the end of the year, let's not be petty. <laughs> That's the one. That's what 2020 is for. The petty 20s. Oh my God. Rebecca just turned everything up. It's not the Roaring 20s. It's the Petty 20s. Because y'all in these 20s are going to be so popping. It's going to seem like you just being petty. It's like, damn, like you, you had to go that hard. You had to come up like that. Damn, why are you trying to come from my neck? I wish that on everybody. So these last 10 years, so many things have happened you know, in our personal lives, in our professional lives, in the world. We've seen technology advance. We've seen film and music and television really just blossom into all types of dopeness on one end and shrivel into all types of whackness on other ends. We've seen politics become our everyday fucking, fucking lives uh, and the, the dissolution of the arts. We've seen a lot. We've seen a lot. We've seen animals decline. We've seen rainforests decline. We've seen uh, sneaker culture continue to grow and expand. We've seen um, black voices uh, continue to, you know, create a space and a niche for themselves. So we've got a lot that we can look back on and record for these history books. And so for these next two episodes, I want to take a second to look back on things that I learned this decade. Things I learned this decade. Yeah. In the decade of the old gods and the new of the tens, the first thing I learned that I'd like to discuss is that social media doesn't last forever. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean this concept that when you post things, it's not going to carry because I think some people absolutely forget that. Like they post something and go about their lives. And then as we have seen with tweets that get resurrected, you know, later people come and try and present tweets and have no context. And, and context, by the way, doesn't just mean like what you said before and after in the tweet thread, but it also means like what was going on in the world. And there's just certain things that you can look back and be like, yeah, yeah. Th there's entire <laughs> catalogs of film and music and TV that simply could not exist right now. That at the time were considered high levels of art, but you can't say that they're no longer valuable altogether you still have to have a certain level of consciousness about like the context of time. That's, That's not what, what I'm talking about. about. What I'm talking about is the fact that like there are people who have hinged their entire careers on a certain social media platform and fail to acknowledge the fact that these platforms don't last forever. And this decade showed us that for real, for real. I mean, literally at the turn of this decade, we saw MySpace just dissolve into thin air. Tom, went on Instagram and be traveling the world. And Facebook, at the top of this decade, Facebook was that thing. People was all about the Facebook. They made a movie about it, okay? 
That's how big a deal it was. It was such an important thing to have your relationship status on Facebook. I remember I had a boyfriend and he didn't know that we had really broken up until I changed our status on Facebook. Until that point, it was just shit I was saying. Until that point, it was just, you know, an argument. But when that when he saw that status change, he was like, oh, oh shit. shit. It's really over. Y'all, that was an era. That was a time. And now we are here. And I feel we've gotten really comfortable with the fact that Twitter and Instagram have made it through to this new decade. But there's a lot of folks that if Instagram died today would not have a job description. They wouldn't. There's a lot of folks that if any of these platforms died today would not have friends. There's a lot of folks that if any of these platforms died today would not know how to lead themselves. Because as we talked about on side effects of the age of influence, these platforms have become so much about what dictates so many of us in how we move, how we do style, you know, how we get our news, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it was really important this decade in my learning to just really realize, like, you can't let the buck stop at these platforms because this shit could get gone any day. And there was a point where I was paying my rent selling my hand-painted tote bags on MySpace. And then MySpace dissolved. And I no longer had a means to do it because I wasn't on Facebook. And I was forced to, like, get back to basics of, like, how do you use your creativity and your art in, like, the real, like, space of humanity and not just the digital and um, that's when I got back to like doing live shows and writing one woman shows, et cetera. So that was a really big learning lesson as opposed to a non-learning lesson. <laughs> Next. I'm sipping tea because this decade I also learned that white women lie about who they're voting for in staggering numbers. Staggering. You remember it. Obama on his way out. Now you can have whatever opinion you want about Obama as president, but I think the general consensus is that there was a certain level of, you know, feeling like that guy knew what he was doing. Feeling like even if he does know what he's doing, they're in there and they're going to work it out. So there was a certain level of peacefulness I feel like a lot of us felt. And then it happened. This guy, Orange, announces he's running for president. A lot of us were like, this isn't going to last. This is the farce. It's a joke. But no, it actually went down. He ran for president and he won. He won, not just because of the Electoral College. I know people are listening and they're like, well, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Okay, but she didn't win it at the landslide that she should have. And when I say should have, I mean the landslide that was estimated based on the exit polls and asking people who they voted for. And when it came down to it, white ladies were saying 
that they had voted for Hillary and they did not. They had voted for 45, the orange. Why? There's many reasons. Some of them really do like this dude. I don't understand. He's a misogynist. He's a racist. He said he's going to grab a pussy. Some of them want him to grab their pussy. It's gross. You. Some of them wanted to vote the same way their husbands voted. You know, because they're a unit. They're a family, etc. And some of them really are racist bitches that wanted to, quote unquote, make America great again. Uh, you know, like when white women could simply just say someone whistled at them and have that person killed. Uh, it was a very wide eye opening time to realize that folks were so willing to be deceptive about it. And I think it made a lot of women who happen to be white look at their Becky cohorts and be like, I thought she was a Hannah this whole time. I thought you were a Hannah and come to freaking find out you were a bullshit ass Becky this entire time world crumbled. Okay. Worlds crumbled. Bottles of electric youth exploded on. (laughs) Why did a Debbie Gibson electric youth perfume reference just arrive in my consciousness? I think because I was talking about white girls and I just it just launched me on a zip line to like the whitest white girl representation I could think of, which includes an amalgam of images like Tiffany singing, I think we're alone now. Doesn't seem to be anyone around in a large sweatshirt at a mall, as well as Jesse Spano having an anxiety attack being addicted to caffeine pills. What are caffeine pills, by the way? Uh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so, I'm so scared. And it culminated in Debbie Gibson. Electric youth. Do you remember that perfume? It was in a blue bottle and it had a hot pink coil. My mother refused to purchase it for me. I'll leave it at that. I say all that to say that I learned this year at the same time as the Hannah's that there was a deception that was deeper than we could ever think of and that had ramifications bigger than I think any of us really considered in a real, real way who were hopeful because there are many people who were like, the fuck out of here. They're absolutely going to vote the sky in office. Do you know where we're at? And some of us were like, well, I mean, we're getting better. No, we're not. And if you look at Trump's approval rating as I sit here recording this on the day of the impeachment hearings. Uh, White women are still approving him at 42%. By the way, black women, 3%. Cause when it comes to doing that shit, as in like knowing where to stand on the side of history, we be nailing that. That we be nailing. So as we step into this new decade, let's all be a little more wary. Okay. Let's all be a little bit more honest. Let's all be a little bit more conscious of how our decisions are affecting others in the grand scheme of things, not just 
Beckys. This decade, I also learned that New York is a young person's town. I learned this when I realized I could no longer survive in New York because I no longer was a young person. When did I decide that? When I felt like every day I was waking up with the energy of an old person saying, get off my lawn, you kids, get off my lawn. Except that's how I felt about the entire island of Manhattan. It just felt like everybody was on my fucking lawn. And that energy made me anxiety-ridden. It made me want to fight. It made me angry. And it was just like, I, I just felt like, you know what? When you're younger, you just have a lot more willingness. You have a lot more resilience, you know? And you also just, for what it's worth, you know less. So you don't have as much mental noise competing with all of the outward noise. And let me tell you, New York is noisy. Not just the sirens, not just the jackhammers, not just the rats running up the staircase in your house between your basement and your first floor and along the ceiling and under the fiberglass of the guest bathroom bathtub thumping against it like boom, 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 boom. And you know those aren't golf balls. No, no, no. It's ratatouille. It's rat again. They're all involved. And I would tell myself, just picture like it's the great mouse detective and they're just trying to solve a crime. It's just some mice and some rats and some rodents trying to solve crimes. That's all. But the reality was what it was. It's not just those noises, no. It's also just the noises of being in proximity, such close proximity with so many people on such a small space. And a lot of those people are in the mindset of go, 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 go. <sighs> well, for young folks, there's, a, there's an invigoration about that. The grind, the hustle, pounding the pavement. There's something to be said about the grit and feeling like you're cutting your teeth on it. You know, there's something to be said about walking down the street and a mysterious liquid landing on your face and you being in your youth have a hopefulness and an innocence to say, you know, I don't know what that liquid is, but I'm pretty sure it's not pee. Your youth is what allows you to sit on a train and have a homeless man pull out a dick and then move to the next car and have another homeless man put out a dick and then move to the next car and have a third homeless dickery happen in your face, not, not to, to be, be confused, confused with Cedric Dickery, and be able to say, maybe this, is, maybe this is just good luck. Once you surpass that and your energy starts doing things like how the fuck did its three dicks just appear for me? I need to write a letter to the MTA. Once you start feeling like you've got to write letters, once you find yourself toting a Swiffer wet jet from 23rd and 6th Avenue's Home Depot uptown to Harlem with sheer excitement about using said Swiffer wet jet, you got to ask yourself, am I too old for this? Because this Swiffer wet jet is the highlight of my day. And that is when you got to ask yourself, is there a better living situation I should be in? I have a friend right now who lives in New York. Her body is breaking down. <laughs> Literally, her body is like straight betraying her. Just like, 
She's like, I cannot, like, my body is, like, done. My knee, I like, my meniscus is, like, out of whack, like, all type of shit. And I'm like, no shit, Sherlock. You're too old for this shit. Like, there's a way you can come back to New York. I feel like once you have a certain level of money and stability where you don't have to be, like, killing yourself every day. When I see grown-ass people in New York living every day, I'm like, God bless you. Because this right here is... It is a hard life. My mom says PTSD from when I lived in New York and you used to have to put the clothes in the in the laundry bag, in the basket, and push the basket up the hill through the snow to the laundromat. And then you have to haggle with the laundromat about how much you're paying per pong. And then you have to go back and pick it up and walk back down the hill through the snow. And then the, the snow is right next to the precinct and you're walking and then the police car come and just splash the clothes with the dirty snow that has melted and you can't say anything because it's a friggin' police officer. Like, my mom has PTSD from that. She's like, I can't believe we did it. I can't. I can't. I'm like, I know. And so... I ended up finding my way to leave New York. I'm very proud of myself for doing it. People will tell you that there's nowhere in the world to live other than New York. Listen, I feel like everybody should live in New York at some point. However, at some point, you got to go. Because you just simply can't sustain the tempo. You can't. That's why even the ones who claim... I never leave New York. Live in Jersey now. This decade, I discovered Nora Ephron. Now, Nora Ephron is a writer who has penned novels, but most famously wrote When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle. When Harry Met Sally is, in my opinion, the greatest rom-com of all time. It has no flaws and has literally the best movie ending line of a rom-com in the history of rom-coms. Some of you might say, wait, 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 wait. Because at the end of Coming to America, Akeem said, do you want me to give all of this up? I will do it all for you. And she says, nah. That was a good one. That was a good one. However, it does not compare to when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Best ever. If you haven't seen When Harry Met Sally, I suggest that you make it your business over this Christmas break to do it. It's on Showtime right now on demand. So if you have Showtime, you can do it. If you got uh, Amazon Prime, you can get like a Showtime free week shit and do it there. But whatever. Or you can just rent it on iTunes. I mean, shit, we didn't have the capability to do all of that at the beginning of the decade, did we? All this on-demand, all this shit? No. You'd have to be clicking through the cable, hoping that maybe it was there. Nora Ephron was a maverick in the literary space and her ability to really just write honest love stories and to write for women in a way that I feel hadn't really been done before. Just in a really raw honest way that had a lot of comedy involved in it that wasn't at their expense. And seeing that was really eye-opening for me when I really learned about Nora Ephron was when I was watching this Nora Ephron documentary on a flight. And I knew who she was like on the surface. But when I watched this documentary and just learned more about her philosophy on writing, her philosophies on comedy, it really just blew my mind and really, for what it's worth, has become like 
a very strong part of the foundation of my ethos and how I write. And one thing she says is make it funny, meaning like no matter what happens in your life, find a way to make it funny. And her th- her thought process around that was that not only because it helps, you know, in your writing and it gives you material, but also because like it helps in your healing, you know, and if you can find a way to find the humor, you can find a way to get over it. And I really, um, I really like had just never had any exposure to like her, her methodologies outside of just her work. And once I did more research into her, it really showed me like, where I want to go as a comedic writer and as a woman and how to make those two worlds intersect in a way that we don't really get to hear a lot spoken about. So if you haven't done any Nora Ephron research, watch her films, read her books. Unfortunately, Nora Ephron passed away this decade of cancer, but she left behind an incredible legacy of really just somebody who knew how to write the hell out of this thing we do called life. So the last in this first half of things I learned this decade is I learned that comedy is my tribe. I started doing stand-up in 2013 after I had done a one-woman show called It's Complicated, Hilarical Answers to Serious Questions on Love at a comedy club in New York. And I was doing like stuff for VH1. And so I was always around comics and I knew that stand up was where I needed to be. And the thing about it is it's like, it's not just that I started doing comedy and it was fun. It was that I started doing comedy and it made sense because it made me feel like I made sense to myself in a way that I think I had really been searching for, you know, and there was always like this consternation about career and like you're a multi hyphenate, but what's the thing? And I could never figure that out. But more importantly, it was also just like I felt like I had these hang ups that I could never explain. Like I was a like I was a misanthrope or, you know, like I was just like cynical or like I was sarcastic. And there was people that looked at these things about me and and turned them into negatives and made them into things that I felt really self-conscious about. But once I started doing stand up, I realized that like my peers who were really good at what they did all possessed those things. You know, for the most part, they may be jolly, but they had a certain level of cynicism about things because of their keen awareness that you have to have to be an exceptional stand-up. And in this process of doing comedy, I, I realized it was not only my tribe for that reason, but I also knew it was my tribe by how quickly things just clicked. Y'all, I started doing stand-up in this decade, 2013. Within five years, I opened for Chris Rock, I opened for Dave Chappelle. I did a special on HBO. I won a Rising Comedy Award at JFL. I met Eddie freaking Murphy. And he said to me, oh, you were just on stage, right? And I said, yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, I missed your set. But but Chris said you're hilarious. <gasps> That's the sound of me dying. I'm dead. I'm dead. You're speak- I'm speaking to you from the other side. I don't know if you know this, but this whole podcast has been coming to you from the other side. It's me and Matthew McConaughey in another dimension, pushing books through a bookshelf, trying to send you messages. Okay? Because let me tell you something. It was a fucking interstellar experience to meet Eddie Murphy and hear his hard-heeled Durangos walking down a hall and know <gasps> it's him. And say, Mr. Murphy, Mr. Murphy, and have him turn around and give me the, (laughs) I mean, I just, so comedy is this, it's just this place. It's just this, 
this 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 decade has been a, a wild ride, but this last year has been a doozy. And it's really this like weird purgatory transition time I've been in from being someone who, you know, I mean, I've been known. I've, I've always been working. But this year, I feel like I went from trying to make it to making it. And people don't understand that, like, that's not something that happens to you first. That happens to, like, the outside people watching you first. And then you have to, like, catch up to that. And it's hard. It's been difficult for me because I never really wanted fame in the first place, but it's inevitable. And and I felt like I didn't have a, a home. Like, I I've, 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 I've felt very not grounded. I felt very unsettled. And the other night I went to the comedy club. I went to the improv to do the love it or leave it podcast. And when I walked in, like Burt Kreichner was like, Amanda, what's up? And like, so we were chit chatting and he's like, oh, I want you to meet this person. And then and he's like, Oh, you know, Alonzo and it's Alonzo Bodden. And I'm like, of course. And Alonzo's like, Amanda, what's up? And then I did the podcast and then I ran into Jay at the improv, who, who's one of the managers. And then I went and Craig Robinson was there on stage in the other room. And I went and sat in the front row and took in some of his hilariousness for a second. And then I had to head out. And when I got up, he was like, Oh, Amanda, you're always so elegant. Miss Seals is also elegant. And I was like, why the fuck don't I come here more often? Because there's love here. And I feel that way every time I go to the comic club. I feel like, you know, this feels right. And I, I worked my ass off to get to this point, not just in comedy, but in life, to get to a point where I can walk into a certain space that feels good and feels right and feels safe. And in this time where I realized that, like, I hate Hollywood and what it stands for, re-realizing that the comedy club is my safe haven from all of that has been an incredible epiphany for me to end not only this year, but this decade, because I get to go into this new decade knowing that I have that place to go to. Tune in next week for the rest of my list of things I learned this decade. Yeah. Starbanks Audio, a podcast. <clears throat> A podcast network.